Good morning. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 15? Genesis chapter 15, as we read together, verses 1 through 6. Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, You have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is God's holy and inerrant and inspired and life-giving word. Let's go to him now in prayer and ask for his blessing. Our Father, we do thank you for this time, and we pray, Lord, now that by the power of your word, you would work within us as your people and bring us more and more to believe to believe in Christ as our Savior, to believe the promises that you've given in your word, and to believe that you are God, powerful, omnipotent, and mighty to save. And it is to your glory we ask now, in Jesus' name, amen. It was argued during the Reformation that the doctrine on which the church stands or falls is the doctrine of justification. I think one of the clearest definitions of justification comes from our own 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which defines doctrine uh, of justification this way. Those whom God effectually calls, He also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, and by accounting and accepting them as righteous. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Justification is not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing to the believer Christ's righteousness. His act of obedience unto the whole law and His passive obedience in His death, all for their whole and sole righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. Uh, You could spend, I think, a good, healthy Sunday afternoon just reading that over slowly and digesting the great truths of that good definition. The definition is clear and a very helpful exposition, not only of what Protestants have believed concerning the heart of the gospel, but really a clear exposition of what the Bible itself teaches according to the heart of the gospel. 
What's fascinating is that the chapter on justification, chapter 11 in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, it ends this way. The justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. The justification of those in the Old Testament is no different than how those in the New Testament are justified. In other words, they're bringing out the idea that Old Testament believers who were justified were justified by believing in the same gospel that you and I believe in. But how could that be, Pastor? They didn't even know Jesus because Jesus hadn't even been born yet. Yeah, but they knew about the coming of Jesus. They looked forward to the coming of a God-promised Messiah. And we've been following that promise throughout the book of Genesis, a promise which began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 with the promise of a child who would come from Eve and who would one day, in giving himself up to be bruised on our behalf, would crush the head of the serpent and return God's people back to God's place. Throughout Genesis, we've not only seen that promise developed and built upon, I think we've also seen a long line of godly men who have trusted in that promise. Men who have, by faith, walked after God and trusted in God's coming Messiah. Quote, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended or counted as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. Hebrews 11.4 Or how about Genesis 5.24 Enoch walked with God, which means uh, he was a man who lived in close communion with God, right? Trusting in him and his promises by faith. And Genesis tells us that because of this, quote, he did not die, for God took him up. Or again, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And as Genesis 6, 9 puts it, he too walked with God. That is, he was a man who believed and had faith in God, which is why Genesis calls him righteous Noah. And now, as we've been following the life of Abram, a man who also walked with God, we see the same theme develop. The essential and central doctrine, biblical idea that what God desires is trust in Him, faith in who He is and what He's promised. And by that faith, a man becomes justified. He's declared righteous. The context, the setting we find ourselves in this morning is in the aftermath of Genesis chapter 14, right? Abram has just defeated the four kings of the east as well as snubbed the king of Sodom by not accepting his gifts from him. So when we read that the word of the Lord in verse 1 comes to Abram and tells him not to be afraid, do not fear, We've got to at least have these events in the background of what we're reading. Was Abram afraid? Perhaps he was. Perhaps Abram was afraid that the kings he just defeated were now rebounding and ready to retaliate. Remember, Abram defeated them by night, ambushing them while they were sleeping. Perhaps he thought they would do the same. You can perhaps sympathize with Abram here, living in a foreign land with only a small clan of people with him, all living in tents. Abram pushing about 100 years old, still no children. 
Are the shepherds and herdsmen in his immediate caravan beginning to question why it is they're in Canaan in the first place? You can almost hear them murmuring in the background something about God. What was his name? Oh, that's right, Yahweh. Yeah, something about this Yahweh promising our leader Abram all this land as well as a people, descendants to come from him. But look at old Abram now. We still don't own an inch of land. We've just gone to battle, and what do we have for show to it? Well, they still didn't know. Now Abram apparently is at the top of the hit list from foreign nations, marauding armies. Was Abram fearful? I think so. It's here after these things, as verse 1 tells us, that the word of the Lord breaks in to Abram's fear-filled heart and provides vision for his cloudy mind. Oh, how often does the word of God, right, that living and active and inspired word of God give us exactly what we need in times of fear or seasons of dryness? God speaks to us today, not through visions, but in and through His Scriptures, the Bible. And this Bible, God's perfect Word, it's dynamic. I mean that in the classic sense of dynamic, that it's powerful. It it brings life. It, It stables us in the midst of doubt. It strengthens us under a barrage of temptation. Do you wake up in the mornings anxious as your mind stresses through all the things you have to do this coming week? Stressing over all the things that you failed to do in the last week? Go and sit before God's Word and just read it. Read and read and keep on reading and don't stop reading until God's Word grabs your attention and your heart becomes more acutely focused upon God and His goodness, on Christ and His beauty, upon the Spirit and His power. Read God's Word until it begins to lift you up out of your own drowning fears. And when it does, and, and, and you feel your heart begin to be warmed and comforted by God's real promises in His real Word, well then pray. Pray over and pray out of God's Word. Pray that God would write His Word upon your heart. Read over that passage again and, and commit yourself to trying to memorize that passage. Friends, I cannot emphasize enough how essential God's Word is to the life of a Christian believer. It is your life. And if you're not availing yourself of this word, I can promise you that the world and the cares and the enticements of this world, where they're going to pull you and weigh on you and pull you down into its dark depths and cling to God's word. What was God's word to Abram? Verse 1, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Here the omniscient, all-knowing, all-wise, all-seeing God stoops down in approach to Abram with a divine greeting, a, a perfect word, and speaks what must have been pure comfort to Abram's troubled heart. Fear not. Why? Because even though you may have accumulated enemies and foes from as far away as Pharaoh in the Nile and to the warring kings of the Euphrates, fear not, for I will be your shield. I am your strong tower, your rock and your redeemer. All the kings of all the nations combined are accounted as nothing before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
What are all the arrows against the shield of the Lord? What attacks can break against the arm of God? It's as if God were saying to Abram, Abram, you can sleep at night now because I never tire. I never sleep. And I have covenantally given myself to watch over you, to be your shield by day and to be your protection by night. I think there's evidence that Abram was in fact keeping awake at night in fear and in anxiety, unable to sleep. Remember, he ambushed and defeated the enemy kings in chapter 14 at night. And so it makes sense in light of that that he was fearing the same thing from them. But even here in this passage, how does God confirm his promises to Abram? Showing him the stars at night. This word of comfort, fear not, is a word that came to Abram as he lay awake at night, apparently troubled over his own situation. And perhaps that describes you this morning. You cannot sleep because your heart fears. Your mind races and stresses over differing anxieties. Friends, in Christ, God is our shield. He is our protection. Does God not promise that for those who love Christ, He is working out all things for your good? Faith rests in those promises. Ask God before bed to help you trust in His sovereign goodness, to trust that He is your shield, and that your faith would be evidenced in an ability to sleep. Sleep is a good, good gift from God. Sleep says, I trust you, God. For six to eight hours, I am entirely in your hands. I cannot work on anything. I can't prepare for anything. I can't protect myself in any way. I am literally giving up all control again tonight for the next eight hours. Anything could happen. So in my sleep, I'm trusting you. Not only does God assure Abram that he will be his shield, But in reference to Abram's earlier refusal to take any gifts from uh, the king of Sodom, God also says here, your reward will be exceedingly great. It may be here, as the New American Standard Bible, I think, has translated it, that God is actually saying, do not fear, I am your shield, your very great reward. You see the subtle difference there? that the sense of it is that God is not only Abram's protection, but God is also his reward. What God was promising was preeminently himself, which really is the greatest reward, isn't it? If that promise of God being your reward underwhelms you, if, if riches or a family, or maybe it's just a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or prestige or honor or the spotlight or fame, if any of that seems like a better reward to you than God, then you have made a God of those things over and above the God of creation. They're idols to you, and it shows that you may not actually know who God really is, how great He really is in and of Himself. One question that I think always helps serve as a barometer for me in this regard is to ask if you would want to go to heaven if Christ were not there. In other words, are you A Christian because you want heaven? Or are you a Christian because you want Christ? If you're content with a Christless heaven, 
then it may be that you have a Christless faith. No, for the believer, Christ is heaven. God is the great reward. And here, the Hebrew of verse 1 seems to indicate that the promised reward for Abram was, in the end, God himself. He is our all in all. This word of promised encouragement to Abram is a promise which finds greater clarity for us as Christians in the person of Christ himself. Christ is our shield, and he is our great reward. But let me address ever so briefly those of you who do not yet have Christ as your reward. If you are an unbeliever, this promise, though offered to you, does not yet hold true for you. In your unbelief, do you not have cause to fear? Outside of Christ, there can be no assurance that you should not fear. No, rather, you ought to fear. Think of the danger to which you are exposed. Think of the eternal reward that awaits your unbelief. It is not a Christ-filled heaven, but the eternal emptiness of a dark hell. Oh, if I could only awaken you now to fear, that you really should fear the reality of judgment. The world and the devil, they've perhaps convinced you not to fear. They've convinced you that your sins and your unbelief will not have any consequences at all. But the Word of God has a different message for you. God says you should fear. You should tremble. And only then, in in a right apprehension of what really awaits you, a right understanding of what your unbelief deserves, oh, friends, only then would I say that the God of Abram may still be your reward. Abram himself was once just as you are, an unbeliever, an idolater living in the land of Ur. It was nothing but God's sovereign grace which called him to himself, much like God may be doing with you right now. The covenant made with him is a covenant now open to you in Christ. In Jesus, all the promises of God find their yes and amen, and the blessings can be yours. If, like Abram, you come and believe. And if you are still wandering in unbelief, Hear now with renewed interest this gospel message. In Jesus Christ, your fears can be relieved and God will be to you no longer a holy judge, but your loving shield and your great reward. Abram, in light of God's assuring promise, responds, I think, with believing protest. He responds with believing protest. It's believing because, well, he responds. (laughs) Unbelief doesn't interact with God. Unbelief is apathetic towards the promises and word of God. But, but belief at least interacts with God, even when there are problems and issues that you cannot quite make sense of. Is that not what so many of the Psalms are about? Prayers offered to God in times of distress? Protests of praise, asking God to help in time of need? I think this is what we see here with Abram. Notice how he addresses God in verse 2 as, O Lord God. He addresses God with reverence, calling him Lord, acknowledging that God is his master and he is his servant. So he believes in God and then he's praying to his God, the God who is for him. But notice he also protests. He offers a prayer of lament. What will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. 
Friends, what do you do with your doubts? When the temptation to doubt God's purpose in your life rears its ugly head again. Here, Abram, I think, provides a wonderful model for us in laying out his concerns before God. Unbelief says, I can handle things on my own because God is not powerful. He is not strong. Perhaps you keep your fears bottled up inside, pretending and making a show to everyone around you that things are just fine when really they're not. Do you struggle to adequately express the very real problems in your life? Faith in God does the opposite. Faith goes to God and is clear about what really bothers you. Faith lays it all out, even the ugly and dark spots of it all, before the only God who can deal with our issues. Look how God deals so tenderly with his stumbling servant. Three times already in Genesis, God has promised Abram a multitude of descendants. Once when he called him out of Ur, again in Canaan when he built an altar, and then once more from this high vantage point where he could look out over the entire land. And now again, God reaffirms the same promise. And he adds a bit of a new little information here, doesn't he? And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now the heir would come from his own body. He would have a son of his own loins. And God, being a God who loves to offer sacramental encouragement, brings his servant outside the tent to look up to the heavens and to see. Verse 5, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram, uh, a man who in his earlier life as a pagan in Ur was not unfamiliar with the stars and the moon which he once worshipped was now led out of his tent to look up once again, but this time from the perspective of believing in the God who made all the host of heaven and placed each star exactly where he desired. At a time before, there was such a thing as light pollution. You couldn't do what God called Abram to do now. Abram would have been greeted by the innumerable billions of stars lighting up the Palestinian sky. He said nothing. He was speechless. There were only stars and silence. And Abram humbled under the grand promises of Yahweh. Abram's awareness that he was impotent, that he was impotent to produce a son, is now met and answered by the omnipotent God who created all the heavens and the earth, every star and galaxy, a God who speaks and universes come into existence, the God who has promised him children. And though Abram does not speak, the text speaks for him. Verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Uh, The Hebrew sense of it is that Abram closed in with this ongoing assurance of what God was promising. The original Hebrew for believed comes from the root for which we get our word, Amen. It's as if Abram in his heart of hearts was saying, Amen to the Lord. A strong affirmation that it will be as God has said. The result? God counted it to Abram as righteousness. 
Kent Hughes, I think, rightly states that no other Old Testament text has exercised such an influence in understanding faith and the gospel in the New Testament as much as this text right here. The verb hashab means, as our text rightly translates it, to count or to credit or to reckon or to impute. And this this word makes all the difference. This is the word that underlies the essential doctrine of justification on which the church stands or falls. Note that Abram is not described as doing righteousness. He's not described here as being righteous. No, the text says that God counted him as righteous. His faith in God was credited to him by God as righteousness. And we need to be clear here. Abram was in and of himself really destitute of all ontological righteousness. If you pierced him with a syringe and pulled out the essence of who Abram was, it would say unrighteous in the vial. Not only had he spent three quarters of his life as an idolater, worshiping the moon and the stars back in Ur, but even as a covenant believer, he still messed things up. He, he already deceitfully gave up his wife to do new, who knows what with Pharaoh. Get this, he's going to do the same thing again in the future. In and of himself, Abram is a sinner. But by faith, God declares him to be something different. He counts Abram as righteous. It's not the righteousness of any accomplishments. It's not the righteousness of sacrifice or worship or any obedience. Indeed, it's not even that the act of faith is righteousness. No, it's stated here that faith alone in who God is has brought Abram into a new standing before the Creator and has credited to him an alien righteousness, a righteousness that wasn't his own that is now credited to him. In other words, it's as if Abram was looking up at the night sky with all its starry host. And as he came to grips with his own impotence to produce a son, it's almost as if he realized his own impotence to produce any righteousness as well. In the presence of God, he was more fully aware of himself, his own weakness, his own sinfulness, his own depravity, his own ability to ever be righteous. But nonetheless, he believed in God. He trusted in the only righteous one, God himself. Indeed, this is how Paul interprets Genesis 15, when later in Romans chapter 4, he writes that if Abraham was justified by works, well, then he has something to boast about, but not before God, says Paul. For what do the scriptures say? And then quoting our passage, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. You, You get what you work for. But to the one who does not work, but simply believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul is underlining the fact that it is by faith alone that anyone is justified. They are declared to be just, credited with a righteousness not their own. Later in Galatians 3, Paul applies this truth to us when he says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scriptures 
foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That's almost everyone in this room. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you see? The same gospel that you and I are called to believe in, the gospel of Jesus Christ, was the same gospel preached and given to Abram. And to be sure, the message of that gospel was not as elucidated as it has been for us. This side of Jesus Christ, we know so much more. But still, Abram looked forward to the same Messiah, a child who would come from him to bless the nations and rule as king over all the earth. His future son of promise is our Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Abram looked forward and believed, so too we look back and we believe. Friends, do you believe in this Jesus Christ? That's the point of this text this morning. Do you believe in him? Are you trusting in anything else for your righteousness? Do you think that because you've come to church this morning, God sees you as righteous? Do you think that because you're a good mother or a hardworking father, that God sees you as righteous. Perhaps you trust in your quiet times of Bible reading and prayer in the morning, certain that those spiritual exercises will present you as righteous before God. Are you trusting in some response, maybe because you walked down an aisle one time in response to an altar call, that maybe God sees that as righteous? Perhaps you've put your faith in faith itself, trusting that your faith is your righteousness. No, friends, all of that must go. None of that will save you. Friends, it is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, the righteous Son of God, who alone must be your righteousness. When the Father asks you, why should I let you into heaven, what answer can we give other than Christ? I cling to Him. He is your shield before the righteous and holy Father. Give up all your other shields, your weak and pitiful works, and simply believe and rest in him. Just as God brought Abram out to behold the night sky, invited him to to cast his eyes upon the stars in order to bolster and sustain his faith, so too God invites us to take and eat the bread and drink the cup as a sign, a, a physical sacrament signifying a deeper and more spiritual, real truth. The bread points to and represents the broken body of our righteous Savior as he hung upon the cross for our sins. The cup that we drink, a sign pointing to his shed blood, is the death Jesus underwent as our sacrifice on our behalf. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to us that Jesus Christ, the righteous Son of God, does for sinners and took the judgment we deserve upon himself so that by faith in him, we too can be credited with righteousness. As Abram's faith was established and he found assurance in God's promises, looking up at those stars, so too this morning as you eat the bread and drink the cup, friends, nourish yourself by faith in Jesus Christ. We do not believe that the bread and wine actually becomes his body and blood, but they only point to the deeper reality that by his spirit we become one with him and that he is for us in and through faith. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, 
you've been baptized, and you are a part of a gospel-believing Bible church, then we warmly invite you this morning to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. If you've not believed in Jesus Christ, we ask that you allow the elements to pass. They have no bearing upon your life. At this time, I'd like to invite the deacons up to help distribute the Lord's Supper. And as they are being distributed, uh, first we will uh, partake of the bread together, and you can partake of that individually as you signify and confess your individual faith in Jesus Christ. And then afterwards, we will distribute the cup. Let me open our time in prayer.